If you take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 11. And this morning we'll be continuing our series that we've titled Life in the Local Church. The title for today's message is The Purpose of the Church. Would you please stand with me? I will read just one verse, but a great one indeed. This great doxology of Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you're not already aware, the word doxology that I just mentioned simply comes from the Greek word for glory. When we think of our lives and all that it entails, I'm sure we all would agree that every aspect of our life should be concerned with the glory of God. What about the aspect of our lives surrounding the purpose of the church? In an age of consumerism, there's certainly no shortage of ideas revolving around that question. Unfortunately, in many respects, many of those ideas are concerned more with a man-centered approach to the purpose of the church as opposed to a God-centered approach that is all concerned with the glory of God. Jesus himself stated his specific purpose when he came to this earth. He mentioned it in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Verse 4 reads, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So, why should we be concerned with the purpose of the church? I would contend we can answer that question by way of seeing how. Jesus Christ accomplished this work of glorifying the Father. Many of you are familiar with Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. The glorification of the Father was accomplished by the Son in His ultimate sacrifice for the sheep, the church. He laid down His life for the church. There's certainly a personal aspect of that. And that He laid down His life, if you are in Christ here today, for you But he also did so collectively with the church. That said, in the same manner, we must be concerned with a rightful understanding of the purpose for God's church. Christ's church, the church that he shed his precious blood for. And our message for today will examine three foundations for to answer the question, what is the purpose of the church? Foundations that I wholeheartedly believe will protect us in these unique and somewhat divisive times and drive us towards greater levels of obedience. We looked at that even in several of the previous messages when we consider life in the local church. And Paul's words to Timothy should still cause us to pause when it comes to any area of drift 
I might say, in doctrine or application and how we practice church, how we do church. Paul said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now, whether it's man-centered consumerism within the church, blinded unbelievers outside the church, or might I say governmental authorities, none of them. Let me repeat that. None of them have any authority whatsoever to speak on the topic of how and why we pursue the purpose of the church that Christ died for. Christ is the head of the church. Nothing can usurp that headship. Let's consider the gravity of those monumental truths as we seek to be obedient in the purpose for the church. In the face, in the day and age we live in, of much obedience and deception concerning the purpose of the church as well. Yes, we know we've been called to be in this world and to speak truth and love to it. However, at the same time, we're not called to be of it. To quote Dr. Jones again from last week, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's with the Father today, he said the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. So, given our introduction focus, let's jump right in with our first and obvious foundation when it comes to the purpose of the church, and that is, number one, a doxological focus. And we just define that term, once again, it just relates to the glory of God. Everything we do relates to that. So number one is the doxological focus. Confessions of faith, many of them we've had experience with in the past, have often been throughout church history a wonderful synopsis of what the Bible teaches. Of course, they are not the inspired word of God, but they can be very helpful. One such confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Question one of the Shorter Catechism asks the question, and many of you are probably already familiar with it, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Whatever we start with, it must begin with a doxological focus, all about the glory of God. Any area of practice in our Christian life, let alone wholeheartedly, specifically, the purpose of the church. You're already there, but let's briefly look closer at Romans chapter 11, verse 36, to begin with. Looking at that verse again, I'll read it again. For from him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now this verse, as you can see, expresses somewhat of a three-pronged understanding of the Christian life in general and the glory that God deserves. He is the source of all things. The verse says, from him. We might say, whatsoever comes to pass is from him. And he has a good plan and a good purpose in the midst of it. He's also the means 
or exercise of all things. We see that in the two words, through him. And then he is the purpose for which all these things bring glory to him. An absolutely magnificent doxological verse when we consider this great God whom we serve and whom we bow before his glory forever. Or, what about that familiar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31? Many of you don't need to turn there, but let's look at it again. We know that passage. Turn one book over, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Considering again the importance of a doxological focus for the purpose of the church. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reads. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now. We don't have to be expert Bible scholars to understand the extent of a doxological focus in life or the purpose of the church for that matter and looking at that verse. Two words communicate all we need to hear. Do all. Everything is about the glory of God. We're commanded. In the original language, this is specifically a command to do all. For the glory of God. Even in eating and drinking. We've been called to glorify God. How much more significant. Is the purpose of the church. Considering. Christ's sacrifice for it. Let's look at one more passage. In support of this doxological focus. For life alone. As well as the purpose of the church. We could spend this entire message looking at passages revolving around the glory of God, but we'll keep it to this three. Turn over to Ephesians chapter three. After Corinthians, and we have Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter three. Now Paul often, in writing many of his letters, begins with his focus upon doctrine and then transitions into practical application in light of that doctrine. Ephesians is an example of that in the first three chapters. And now as he's beginning to transition into the application, look with me at verse 21 as he closes out the doctrine and transitions into the practical. We read, To him be the glory in the church, And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So. At least just in these three simple verses. We see this all encompassing. Doxological focus to life. We've read of the words all things glory forever. Do all and forever and ever. Leaves no room for debate. When it comes to our purpose, when it comes to the church's purpose, it comes back to our motive for life. Or for the sake of this message, our motive when it comes to the purpose of the church. I love the words of the 18th century American missionary to the Delaware Indians, a good friend of Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd. He said, I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. My heaven is to please God and glorify him and give all to him and to be wholly devoted to his glory. This is a man that was wholeheartedly committed in a very difficult circumstance to live a life committed to the glory of God. This type of doxological 
glory of God focus is certainly critical for church leadership. We've discussed that in the previous two weeks. However, application abounds for the church as a whole as well. We've mentioned this in the past. But what is our desire when we come to this local body? Is it one to get? Or is it one to give? That's the question for us. How might we seek first and foremost to honor and glorify God even in our purpose individually as well as collectively, communally, here at Miriam Christian Chapel. Not just to get, but to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. We could go on with several questions examining our lives in light of this church and this body. What about our musical worship at church? What about our dress? What about our interactions? What about our ministries? What about our disagreements? Whatever it may be, The glory of God should be the filter through which everything flows. When examining ourselves, leaders included, the question should always be, does this action shine a light upon me or upon God? Let's turn our attention to the second foundation. You'll notice actually a previous connection to the role of a shepherd that we looked at in a previous message two weeks ago. But number two, when it comes to the purpose for the church, is a teaching focus. A teaching focus. Turn back to Matthew chapter 28. Many of you Know where I'm going. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission. What is the purpose for the church? These are Jesus' last words before his ascension. In these last words, we see a sort of purpose statement. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You know it. It reads, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's examine a couple points here. Number one, the command of this section, a sort of purpose statement to the church, is to make disciples. The church, unfortunately, has been hijacked in many respects by many False teachers and some that perhaps have just lost a focus. But the church is not called to tickle the ears of unbelievers in order to make our message more palatable. The truth of Christianity is as palatable to the unbeliever as a sour lemon to a child. You can picture it now. The unbeliever, unless God might grant him repentance and faith, will continue to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this world has blinded them. Instead of frivolous, weak catchphrases that some churches attempt to utilize like we are the church for the unchurched. How about a bold, unadulterated commitment to make disciples by God's grace? Maybe one that sounds like this might sound familiar to you. To proclaim the supreme glory of God by making disciples, building the body, and reaching the world. That's MCC's purpose statement. Praise the Lord for men who have gone before us, who have established a purpose such as this. Whether through outreach or inreach, the purpose is crystal clear when it comes to a teaching focus. Take, for example, Acts chapter 14. You don't need to turn there. But in that passage, we see both of these elements in the foundation of teaching. Making disciples, a teaching focus, outreach as well as inreach. Acts 14, 21 and 22 reads, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Definitely. Not the message that a seeker-sensitive, man-centered purpose statement would want to portray, that's for sure. That through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. What prepares us through those tribulations? But a teaching focus grounded in making disciples. That said, a teaching focus is certainly a part of Jesus' last words. And oh, by the way, it just so happens to be a part of the birth of the church as well. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verse 42. Following this great birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, we come to Peter's sermon. You read through that sermon, I love it. A power-packed, hard-hitting gospel-saturated message of truth. And in that sermon, God utilizes the message of the gospel to bring 3,000 souls to repentance and faith in Christ. And then as the church is beginning to take shape, what do we see as its foundational elements in verse 42? Look with me. Acts 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayer. Now, outside of the teaching element that we're within right now, I'll leave my comments for these other elements for our third foundation. That said, let me add a couple more thoughts on this teaching focus. You know this phrase, continually devoting themselves, it relates to enduring difficulty or even a perseverance in the difficulty. Like an athlete who perseveres through thick and thin to claim his prize. Such was the devotion 
of the early church to the apostles' teaching. Two weeks ago, we mentioned the priority for church leadership when it comes to feeding the sheep. And that priority, we saw the essential nature of the ministry of the word for leaders in Acts chapter 6. What's more, we're also very familiar with Paul's words to leaders and Timothy specifically when he called them to preach the word. What about the church as a whole, though? What might be a response for us when it comes to this specific purpose for the church? A teaching focus. How about the reciprocating act of teaching? Would we be wholeheartedly devoted in the same manner as those apostles in the foundation of the church to be learners of that teaching? If you recall from our message in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we looked at the difference between the godly priests of Israel as compared to the disobedient. In that message in verse 7, the godly priests of Israel were described as those who preserved knowledge. If we were to use the Hebrew from that text, we would say that Application-wise, we are wholeheartedly committed and devoted to protect and guard an intimate understanding of the Word of God. Or, what about embracing further our role as slaves of Christ? Paul communicated as such in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. He said, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. At one time or another, each and every one of us can recall those of us that are in Christ here today, what it was like to be wholeheartedly devoted and committed to worthless pursuits and endeavors, slaves to sin. But thanks be to God, we are no longer slaves to sin, those of us that are in Christ, but slaves to Christ. And now, because of our desire to please Him and to glorify Him, might we run harder the race that is set before us by the grace of God? You often hear me quote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. I love that verse. Paul said that I work harder than anyone, but it is not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Would that be us? as we seek to reciprocate, if you will, this teaching focus to be learners of God, sold out for Christ. As we here, from a leadership perspective at MCC, strive to continually promote a teaching focus, would we as a body embrace it? Whether it's the pulpit, whether it's our Sunday school classes, whether it's our men's and women's Bible studies, perhaps even our new community groups, let us be found like the good priests of Israel, guarding an intimate knowledge of the Word of God, embracing a proper teaching focus for the church. So, before we move to our third, just a simple review again. Number one is a doxological focus when it comes to the purpose of the church. Number two is a teaching focus. And our third 
and final foundation, we'll begin to see more of this collective, communal aspect when it comes to the purpose of the church. And that's number three, a fellowship focus. I have to say up front, when it comes to this foundation, I need to lay it out with several sub-points. There is a part of me that wanted to label it as sub-points because if I broke it into foundations, maybe some of, some of you would be running out the door thinking we're going to be here forever. So hopefully I make it more palatable that it's a sub-point. That being said, they all fall under this large umbrella of a fellowship focus. We'll call the first sub-point meeting together. We'll turn over to that very familiar passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Right before the book of James, right after 2 Timothy, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at verses 24 and 25 surrounding a fellowship focus and this sub-point of meeting together as we seek to be obedient in the purpose for the church. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. These two verses read, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, these two verses are powerful indeed in and of themselves. But oh, do we have much greater understanding when we look at the preceding context. I'll read verse 19 and verse 23. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's because of what Christ has accomplished that we have boldness, that we have confidence to play our role in this purpose of the church. Solomon said there's certainly nothing new under the sun. That being said, I want you to think for a moment about this purpose of fellowship and meeting together given our current circumstances. Instead of boldness and conviction, some pastors are advocating the headship of Christ over his church to the tyrannical arm of Caesar himself. A good pastor friend of mine in Cincinnati, Ohio, Pastor Don Green, said the following just this week. If the government can tell you how and when to worship it can tell you what to teach. If the church lets the government dictate the terms of worship, it will let it dictate doctrine too. Many may not see that yet, but it's inevitable. Powerful indeed but extremely important for us to understand who is the head of the church and what is the purpose of the church. Now, why is it critical that we protect the purpose of the church? 
Number one, simply because God's word calls us to meet together. Secondly, we need the church. We need to think carefully on how we can stir up the emotions of our brothers and sisters onto love and good deeds. As we consider our own culture, we're certainly in desperate need of encouragement. As image bearers of God, designed to be in communion with one another, there's nothing like seeing the warm smile of a brother and sister. There's nothing like hearing the affirming words of the body of Christ. There's nothing that replaces the hug of a brother and sister in Christ. Even in our Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which we looked at, As the church was beginning, we saw this commitment in the early church for fellowship. Beloved, perhaps we know it even more now than we did before. The church is absolutely essential. That said, My promise to you is that as a team here at Miriam Christian Chapel, we will always protect the purpose of the church when it comes to a fellowship focus and a meeting together, no matter what the cost. Let's look at another sub point of a fellowship focus. Turn back to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, as we made reference to earlier, first three chapters of that letter being very doctrinally focused, And chapters 4 through 6 being about life application, applying the doctrine. Now Paul in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 begins this charge for unity. And that's what we'll call this next sub-point, unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 reads, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We all know that at times this charge is difficult. We all wrestle individually with our sinful flesh. At different times, circumstances make it even more difficult. Even given the times that we're in now, unfortunately, many churches are suffering when it comes to unity. We must fight to preserve the unity of the church. And this word tolerance in the passage, once again, relates to enduring difficulty. The universal church, in many respects, over the last several years, has endured much difficulty. Allow me to offer one thought for application and how we might preserve unity in the midst of a culture that we are smack dab in the middle of 
Take, for example, the new mRNA shot. One thing is certain up front concerning a proper theology of the body. No man-made authority outside of, in some respects, your spouse can ever mandate to you how you steward your body. It's important for us to understand. However, based upon Romans chapter 14, in our liberty of conscience, all believers should be able with grace and love allow for differing viewpoints when it comes to how you steward your body. We must not look like the world when it comes to all the disunity. Shot or no shot, or for that matter, mask or no mask. Grace and love is what the church is made up of. Your body has been given to you by the Lord himself to steward and make decisions for yourself. And we have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever they decide in that area. And why is that important? In the grand scheme of the church's purpose, this concept, this subpoint of unity and a fellowship focus. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus himself in John 17, later on in that high priestly prayer. He said, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You see it? This is absolutely massive. The Lord Jesus himself uses our unity to affirm the gospel message. That's why it's critical for us to understand this. Truth will always be paramount. Nevertheless, our desire is to exemplify truth with humility, with patience, with love. That is a light that the world does not understand. And they are watching. And Christ calls us to that type of unity. Now, our third subpoint flows forth once again from Acts 2.42. And it hits another element of that text. And we'll call this prayer. When we think of prayer, we often think from an individual perspective. We're called to pray unceasingly, are we not? It communicates, in essence, a lifestyle of prayer. However, the grammatical construction of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, more than likely actually communicates a specific and formal commitment to communal, collective, corporate prayer. This was a part of the foundation of the early church. When we look throughout the book of Acts, we see many occurrences of the church praying together. Jesus himself modeled this. The New Testament demonstrates repeatedly the church praying together. All that to say, as for us here 
a local body here, Miriam Christian Chapel, would we pray that the Lord would foster in us a greater desire for corporate communal prayer, a foundation to the church? Better yet, would we be a part of taking action to build that ourselves? Talk is cheap. Will we walk the talk? Now, there's one last sub-point, and I will only mention it here this morning. And the reason for that is because I plan on, in the subsequent weeks following next week, to address this point individually in two separate messages. But for the sake of this message and understanding this final sub-point of a fellowship focus, we would call it the ordinances of the church. Baptism and communion. Whether it's Matthew chapter 28, which we have just looked at, Acts chapter 2, 42, they broke bread. We see throughout the scriptures that the Lord Jesus himself has given two ordinances to the church which are important and essential when it comes to a fellowship focus in baptism and communion. With that said, we will take a deep dive on both of those in the upcoming weeks. So, allow me just to offer a final thought or two for personal application. When it comes to a fellowship focus, what are we doing to develop stronger relationships within the body of Christ to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit? What are we doing? Would we be like Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi when he said that He desired and he longed with all his heart with the affection of Christ Jesus to be with them. Do we long with the affection of Christ Jesus to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ each and every Sunday? What about outside of Sunday? Some of you, and I hope... I've already made this decision. Some perhaps are still even praying. And I would pray that if it be the Lord's will, that this message would encourage you to consider how you might do that even within our community groups that are beginning here tonight. A commitment, a devotion to have stronger bonds and unity and fellowship with the body of Christ When it comes to our unity, by all means, from a positive perspective, fight for it. If you recall in our message from Philippians, when Paul was addressing Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, he spoke about standing firm in this pursuit of harmony. It's a military type term. Would we in that same manner positively fight for harmony and unity in the body of Christ? However, unfortunately, in a world stained with sin, we also need to be aware of, from a negative perspective, dangerous opportunities for division as well. Let us be on guard against gossip or any type of potential divisive harm to the church. Paul stated in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. We need to be on guard. The world is watching We want to foster unity, but we cannot be naive to the fact that, as Jude said, 
There are individuals that have crept in. By God's grace, this church has been protected for many years, and I hope and pray that's not the case here today. But we need to be on guard. Diligent to preserve unity. Finally, as we consider these three foundations, a doxological focus, a teaching focus, and a fellowship focus, let us never forget Christ's concern for the church. He purchased the church with the ultimate sacrifice of his life. And now, because of his victorious resurrection from the grave, we have a great high priest who enables us to fight and to stand to preserve the unity, the fellowship, the purpose of the church. He's building his church, and the gates of Hades will never overpower it. Thanks be to God for that promise and truth. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious church. You gave your life for the sheep. Lord, we are your sheep. Lead us, O oh Lord. Guide us. Grow us in your sanctifying truth, Lord. Help us by the Holy Spirit that is within us to be learners of your word, guarding an intimate knowledge of that truth. Help us with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength be committed together communally, corporately to protect the purpose of the church in which you died for. And Lord Jesus, if perhaps there may be one within this room here today who does not understand in an intimate manner that they are a part of the church in which you died for, that they are outside of the flock in which you died for, Lord, I pray that you would convict them today of the sin in their lives and give them the gifts of repentance and faith in order that they might be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' precious name we pray, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.